0: cast now with De Bel get ready to listen to your favorite artists
1: Carrie Ben Tom such an honor such a pleasure so great to see Reno 911 back So I guess I'll throw this first one to Tom. When you were coming up with the season, what came first, this awesome premise, or the idea to do another season?
2: <laughs> uh, we would actually the 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 weirdly the defunded like title and the fact that that was the theme revealed itself to us very late. Um, we were, however, doing a lot of material just because, like, how could you have a cop show that doesn't address? All of the insane shit that's happening. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of cop shows went away that had that weren't in touch with you know the sort of the icky side of all of this, and so we were doing we were swimming right at a lot of sort of icky stuff, but in the Reno 911 way, which is weirdly usually fairly upbeat. So um, yeah, the defunded uh, and the fact that that was the theme. Mm-hmm. It sort of revealed itself late. I mean, we were doing briefings where we had no table. We, you know, we started the season with like, what if we all have to sit in the car together?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, which was an awful, awful day. Ian got hurt. We were all covered in mayonnaise and corn. It was just a horrible day. Um, but yeah, that was uh, the
1: the defunded idea revealed itself sort of at the end, almost. Yeah, uh, Carrie. Now we open this conversation by talking about how much you miss New York, but Was there any hesitation for you to do another season of Reno Nine One One?
3: Hell no! I (laughs) love these guys. I will. I. I. I, It's my happy place. It's my sweet spot. Niecy Nash is really the reason that it all happened. She's the one that you know started pushing. Like, when are we going to do it again? When are we going to do it? P.S. She's the busiest person on the planet. But (laughs) he's. So we're like, if she can do it, Um, no. Favorite thing, favorite people, favorite place, favorite all. COVID made it less fun because it just became a lot more, you know, having to work around that in writing and editing and all of that. But um, oh, no hesitation whatsoever, and it didn't seem that the cast had any hesitation. And we oh. made deals, we got in there, and people couldn't couldn't wait. Everyone was on their a game right away.
1: Uh, ben, this might be a hard question. Oh, shit. Reno, Nevada. Uh, I know the exteriors are filmed there, but can you recommend a spot to dine at in Reno, Nevada, if I ever go there?
2: It is closed, but there used to be a strip club with a sushi bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the sushi was exactly as good as the strippers. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean either of those in a positive sense. I believe, I bet you that one of the first things that closed down with COVID was the strip club that was a sushi bar. So I, I can't help you. We all went. We went to Reno together for one weekend. It mm-hmm. was a contest to go to Reno with us, and I will say it was off the charts fun.
3: It was fun, so, but yeah. no, we don't, Darren. We don't shoot the exteriors there. Like we don't all go there. We send a, a B camera there to shoot, but we don't. We don't send actors there. Got it. Only because we, we don't have enough money. It's not like you know. It's not when like we, we all go there.
0: When we, we all. all went, to,
2: yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. When we all went there together, we got off the plane together. And it was when we were, it was back when the old shows were on season like two or three. And there were four Reno police waiting at the terminal. And we said, this is either going to go really, really great or really, really bad. And what they said was, boy, you really put our town on the map. Uh, <laughs> and it went great. The city of Reno gave me a shout out on Twitter on National Law Enforcement Day. <laughs> the, act, the, act, the actual city of Reno. So like, I feel like we, yeah. we definitely, you know, we're aware of each other <laughs> in, a very, in, a very, in a very positive way.
1: Well, the next time I interview you, you all, we will delve into Viva Variety. But for now, sure. the last uh, question I have is, there's a wonderful video of you all from the state.
3: Oh dear, nudity? To Panama. Panama. Panama, that is correct. No? Where did you
2: see Panama? It's it's in the state end credits. Yeah, it's on a show. We put it on. It's not on
1: the DVD, but David Wayne's Vimeo has it posted. So I was curious if anyone, as a person writing a book about David Lee Roth, if anyone in the state was a huge Van Halen fan or that was mockery of
3: Van Halen.
2: Two things. One, we did that at an MTV Christmas party where you could do that. Yeah. MTV Christmas parties were the most debauched, insane thing that's ever happened since Caligula.
3: Legendary. They were wonderful.
2: They were amazing. They will never happen to anything like that again. Two, we went to see David Lee Roth, remember? At uh, town hall or something like that. And he told the story of his recent, he had just been arrested. This is how different the world was. Washington Barry. Square Park,
1: yeah. He'd been arrested for, a for buying
2: a dime bag of weed in Washington Square Park. And he came out and he was doing a show at Town Hall and we went and saw him. And then we went to the after party at the tunnel and hung out. Another, another,
3: another yeah. fun fact about that video is that video, the night of that party, mm-hmm. the next morning, I believe, mm-hmm. was my SNL audition. And not surprisingly, you can guess by the, the state mm-hmm. of me in that video, mm-hmm. did not go great.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I can only thank you all for the decades of. Excellent entertainment, and looking forward to whatever's to come. Whether it is another Reno Nine One One season on Roku, your blockbuster movies, your sitcom cameos, whatever it is. Thank you.
2: you rock. Thank and you, sir. You say like, hi,
3: to Big Apple.
1: If you Thanks, feel like sir. it, would you
2: mind mentioning that you don't need a Roku box to watch Roku? You could just like, yeah. Not everybody. I don't. Th- I think
1: a lot of people might not know that.
3: Yeah, it's yeah you for- can just watch it. Yeah. Description to watch the show. Totally.
1: Yeah. Outrocast. Aside from having to do a media day, how is your day going?
4: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's good. It's really good. Thanks. I've read some good scripts and had some good food. What more could you ask for, right? How about you? How was your day, Darren?
1: So far, so great. You are interview number two of four, but I'm going to say maybe the most well-spoken of the interviews I'm doing today. So, you know, (laughs) no pressure. (laughs) Okay. Uh Uh-oh. This we're we're in the heavy metal genre now. a lot today. So what can you do? Okay. But I get it. Uh, as a licensed investigator, uh, I enjoy watching shows to see what techniques go into preparation for roles. Did you shadow people before taking this role? Well, you know, we were in
4: something called I don't know if you've heard of it, a pandemic. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah once or twice. Yeah, yeah.
4: Right. I think it's been thrown around a bit. Um, so we weren't really allowed to shadow people. Uh, I wasn't allowed to hug people, lick anyone's face. It, it was it was not it's not my usual way of doing things. Uh, sure. So we had to do everything on Zoom. But the producers were good enough to set up a meeting with a I believe he's retired detective, who kind of walked us through the things that would have happened once you get that call that there's been a murder. Mm -hmm. And he told us about something called the golden hour and how that's the best time to get as much evidence as you possibly can. As soon as the crime has been committed from the victim, all this kind of stuff uh, before evidence gets tampered with, there's too many people on the scene of the crime. Uh, So that that's basically what we did through them. Personally, what I did is I read a couple books. One was written by a woman who was in the police force. So that was interesting from, from that standpoint, as you can probably you probably understand the the misogyny that's in in that um just a few a
1: obstacles bit? yeah just a few a little bit
4: yeah <laughs> uh and then also written, uh, another one written by a guy who who pretty much explained the same thing that the other detective did how it's all yeah. broken down yeah
1: well We've seen a real evolution, I think, in shows that investigate murders that have police and detective activities from if you think about all the shows in the 70s through maybe the late 80s. It was all like mm-hmm. they solved the murder. Uh, if it's a one hour show, they solved the murder about 52 minutes in. Uh, it's like the yeah. third suspect. Usually, Obviously, you show yeah. does not follow that formula. But did you grow up watching a lot of procedural shows along those lines?
4: I grew up watching uh, Cagney and Lacey. Excellent. Heart to Heart, also a favorite. Uh, And Murder, She Wrote. My mom was a big Murder, She Wrote fan. So I think that kind of, that's that's quite a broad spectrum, right? NYPD Blue, uh, and then obviously the Law and Orders in recent history. So uh, this is not that show.
1: (laughs) It is definitely not that show. It's a lot smarter the program that you were part of. How long did Thank you me. have to keep it a secret of, I'm cast in this? What, what was the timeline between being cast and the first episode airing?
4: Oh, uh, almost a year. No, oh. a little over a year, actually. A little over a year. But once they released it in the Hollywood Reporter and that kind of thing it was probably before we started shooting. So yeah, I didn't have to keep it secret for very long, which was nice not very um, good at keeping secrets.
1: <laughs> well, did you know outright it was going to be airing in the States?
4: Yes. Yeah. Because uh, they mentioned Acorn TV and I only knew Acorn TV in America. I didn't even think we had Acorn TV in, in the UK. Uh, so I knew it was from the, for the American market. And also I think visually when you watch the show, you're, you're acutely aware it was made for the American market. It's very pretty. The shots of Chelsea and It's so quintessentially London. Like there's double-decker buses and the London Eye and you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. So it's made, I think it's made for the American gaze more than the British one.
1: Wow, that's an interesting perspective there. Acorn, that channel means you're basically a cultural ambassador, whether or not you want to be. (laughs) Good, I was hoping to be. My mother will be so proud. (laughs) And then (laughs) you mentioned the Hollywood Reporter. That's one of those outlets that, they have to break the story that the project exists. And until they yeah. do, it's them and Deadly.com. Until they do, you're not allowed to talk about it. In your case, are you allowed to talk about what's next? Or is this show the tunnel vision, the only thing you're working on And So Help Us God?
4: Uh, right now, do you mean?
1: Yeah. Uh, now, as somebody who tapes junkets, a lot very often, if we're allowed to call them junkets. I don't know if that's an right. impolite term, uh, but you'll talk to people and they go, oh, I filmed that like four years ago. Um, I've done <laughs> six movies since then. You're gonna
3: have
4: to yeah. remind me. Yeah, no, no, This no. this, I mean, we shot this last spring uh, and I've just got back from Los Angeles. I was shooting a new, a new Apple TV show in Los Angeles. So that was fun, but that's something completely different. That's a kid's show. It, it's uh, it's a completely different character, but a completely different genre. So that's it's, it's the first time in my working career that I've done something that my, my daughter can actually watch. So
1: that's good. Well, that it also may be the out.
4: only thing. It may be the only thing until she's older that she can actually watch.
1: Depends. I mean, my parents yeah. didn't tell me what I couldn't watch when I was growing up, but I still watched yeah. Full House.
4: I get it. I get it, yeah. <laughs>
1: But that speaks to your versatility because, you know, going back like 10 years or so, if somebody was doing a kids project or a, a thing targeted toward children, it was the end of the rope for their career. And now wow. you can you can do the most adult thing ever and then you could go towards something for kids and then go back. Like I remember James Gandolfini from The Sopranos was on Sesame Street once.
4: Really? Excellent. That's the person you want on Sesame Street. Really, talking to Elmo, just like, yeah, chilling, hanging out on the stoop,
1: yeah. Yeah, so, so, so projecting what I've learned here, excellent show that you've got. Do we know if there's another season coming or do we have to wait a little bit?
4: I mean, that's a really good question. Everyone involved wants to do another season, so we just have to wait from Acorn. I think it will depend how it's received in the American market,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and hopefully America loves it as much as we do.
1: I I get why anyone would like it. As you pointed out, visually stunning, Mm well-written. The people did their research. What's not to love?
4: Good. I'm glad you thought we researched it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking, I'm joking. We did, we did.
1: Well, I think you did. Uh, There's a lot of shows, you know, something that drives me crazy without naming names. I watch a lot of shows that are biopics. And you go, that right. timeline-wise could not have happened. That technology did not exist. There's nothing yeah. of your show where I go as an investigator. That, no, that would not happen. So good. somebody did their research.
4: Yeah. Excellent. Good to, good to hear.
1: Okay. And then one or two quick questions and then you're free. And the first one has nothing to do with the excellent show. And that's, okay. who is your favorite musical artist of all time?
3: Ooh.
4: Oh, uh, that's controversial, because if you'd asked me a while back, I would have said Michael Jackson, but that's a controversial answer.
1: No uh, judgment. Freddie Mer- we, Fre- we were, Freddie- my wife and I were married by a Michael Jackson impersonator, so how do you think okay. we feel?
4: Yeah. yeah, you can't show those wedding photos to people. No. Yeah. Um, also, Freddie Mercury. Fantastic. There's a lot. Elvis. David Bowie. I mean, there's a lot. I could go on. We could go on for a while about this. Hmm. This is a whole other show.
1: It it is another show, but I figure let's, let's attach the personality towards, you know, not just greatness on the screen, but what they like to do. So then I guess the the, the last thing I'll, I'll ask is, is a staple question, but what do you wish more people knew about you besides, Hey, this is a steadily working, great actress.
4: No, thank you. Uh, uh, that I can be I never get to do it, but I can be somewhat amusing.
1: Obviously.
3: (laughs)
4: Right. I know I always get cast in like the very tough roles and I'm like, I, I did stand up in New York. Like I know I, I can, I can be a little funny. Give give me some written stuff. I can deliver it.
1: I did not know you did stand up in New York. Well, the next junk. It was, I mean,
4: I. When, when you get me I mean it was a mouse farts worth of energy that I put into it but I did do it yeah
1: <laughs> we will find out if it was the comedy seller stand up New York whatever <laughs> it was Sanita thank you for your time and just keep up all the greatness
4: thank you so much take care
1: Outrocast. The first track that we heard from the album was EWF, which we yes. know was inspired by Earth, Wind, and Fire. When was yeah. that one written in the overall process of the album?
0: It's interesting because I'd always, I'd always just been a big fan of Al McKay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just loved his guitar style, in particular the the vibe of Shining Star. You know, which mm-hmm. I'd never really learned that track, but you know, I had this. this... Yeah, clean that. Yeah, I had the. the, the... That's the riff to EWF for those that haven't heard yes. it. But it was very much me just kind of imitating the vibe that I remembered from that from that track. So I had, I think I had the the basic riff, but not a song around it. When Josh Smith and I first connected and talked about doing the record, I thought, hey, I've got this riff. I know it, the band's going to be a funky, earthy rock blues thing. This will fit. And so he and I kind of finished the song together. He he wrote the, the the chorus and bridge to it, and you know, there it is. It's just it's just kind of. I don't think it's much of a song, it's just a vibe. It's just kind of a a good feeling groove and a a place to play a little bit. So it's kind of a fun track to open the record with. And I also love it just because it was, you know, once we got the arrangement together, I think that's the only take we did. It's just live Mm -hmm. start to finish. You know, we all played live together in the studio. So it was nice to do a record like that, not knowing that, you know, within a month and a half, nobody was going anywhere and that was not gonna be possible so basically we did the record in two and a half days in january of 2020 and the plan was the plan was i was gonna (laughs) you know i was gonna come back in march to finish up whatever songs needed you know to to replace the guitar or overdubs or whatever but of course the best laid plans you know nobody went anywhere after that so it just you know i had to finish it here in my home studio by myself i wanted to do you know that was the great thing about working with um a guitar player as great as josh was it's usually me and my band or my engineer, but I'm the only guitar player in the room. So to have a guy like that with those ears to have some different ideas occasionally, or here, try this. Um, and just the, the, that kind of inspiration and pressure of having a guy that you respect so much on your instrument in the room with you, you know, even though he's not playing, it's, it's, that's not, that was a good thing for me. I really enjoyed that, the energy and the, the part of my playing that that brought out.
1: Hmm, but that's yeah. not the only new music from you within the last two years early into the pandemic mm-hmm. i had the pleasure of interviewing matt and greg wow, yeah. So, yeah the red coats <laughs> and in the process of that they, it was just like a love letter to andy timmons in the middle <laughs> of that they were uh talking about how great you are as a oh player, man how great you are as a player uh, etc right on we're ever gonna see a live gig from the Redcoats or is that just too much to coordinate between Ringo touring, yeah. John touring, et cetera?
0: Well, you say that there has been, there's been one Redcoats gig. I'm, I'm, my chronology is horrible, but maybe it was October, November of, of, of last year, we did a gig. We'd set, there's a great venue here in McKinney where I live called the, the Guitar Sanctuary. That's the shop and then there's the sanctuary. It's like a 300 seat venue attached to this amazing guitar shop. Mm-hmm. And so we'd arranged, we'd never, we never played in the room together on the record. I think Matt and Greg might've cut the rhythm section stuff together. Then they would send the tracks to the various players. And then Mike Medina who mixed the record is also a great, great musician plays everything from bass to guitar, to all the percussion on the record. And, uh, you know, Mike would come to my studio. I'd put the tracks up, we'd record. And so it was done very much piecemeal like that. But we decided, Hey, let's see about, because we would like to do some gigs. You know, there was actually a a small tour put together in Italy, but the, the pandemic was still going on. And, it just the timing was bad but let, let's get together and play a gig and s- see if we can do this and see so we we literally did that record start to finish with one rehearsal and so if you look at the the compositions and the, the variety of stuff on that record it was a lot a lot of homework but everybody came yeah. in and i gotta say it came off great so there is talk about yeah when we can we want to get out and uh and play some shows and and have some fun but yeah i, I mean what a hoot to be with Greg and Matt, just two of the great musicians I'll, I'll ever play with and just great guys. And of course, you know, Greg and I are like the biggest Beatle geeks. You know, it's a, Yeah, there's
1: are Sgt. Pepper's uh, yeah, yeah. in the middle of the pandemic. You uh. guys are on that list of people who can play a million notes but choose not to play a million
0: notes. <laughs> there's, there's a track on, uh, on on the electric the new Electric Truth record called uh, When Words Fail. Mm-hmm. And somebody had posed this question earlier about, you know, how do you decide how to balance melody and and being a guitar player where that tends to put -hmm. to mind, oh, I better show what I can do. There's, you know, there was this tune where the chorus comes up and I don't play anything. (laughs) I'm I'm the main melody and I'm the singer, so to speak, on the instrument in the song. And I let four bars go by without playing anything. But I thought that was a great way to give weight to when I finally do play something, you know, that it's, it's gonna have, it's that pregnant pause before somebody says something important. It, it kind of, it draws the listener in like, wow, okay. But as guitar players, we have a tendency because we physically don't actually have to breathe as a horn player or a singer. Mm-hmm. We can just widdly diddly from start to finish for you know, five and a half minutes and never take a breath, never stop. Sure. So, but for me as, as a composer, as, a, as an improviser, you know I, I do want to hear some melodies i you know i am not afraid to to show that i'm a guitar player in that same course I, le- I let four bars go by then i say a couple of sparse things and then there is a, a very guitar licky thing that happens but it has a different meaning when it hasn't been connected to a lot more of that it has mm-hmm. it has a feel it has a vibe and it goes somewhere so i guess you know the more you mature as a as a writer as an improviser as as a musician you know you you tend to fine tune these things and just, I, it's a, I can always recognize throughout my career that I, I, I was usually trying to play what was appropriate in the mm-hmm. moment, and that's very much being empathetic with the musicians I'm playing with, respecting the music, but as a guitar player through that, I can also recognize like, man, I'm I'm just trying to shred to show that, hey, look at me, you know? So there's, there's a bit of that, and I think there's, I think the guitar community out there enjoys that on a certain level, I and mean, it gets fun, it's a cool sound and i like i wish i had a bit more of that at my you know at my uh, at my in my within my grasp at any moment and so
1: i, I think you do you, you <laughs> are, i i think the best way to call you or, or classify you would be you're an iridium artist in oh. that uh iridium which i'm referring to the new york city yeah Times yeah spiral, yeah where sometimes you're playing theaters Sometimes you're playing a club gig. Sometimes you're playing jazz. Sometimes yeah. you're playing covers. Sometimes it's fusion. You are a utility player, and you you can yeah. always meet the needs of the project. So sometimes that means too many notes.
0: <laughs> that's too many. That's a Steve Morse composition. T u t u m e n i. Too many. Too many notes. Um, yeah. And it, but again, in, in, at the right time, I have, I have this song called Groover Die. That's just a kind of ridiculously fast heavy metal shuffle. Romp, you know, uh Ingve sounding thing, and it's a blast to play. I love playing that. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it all night because I I would get bored, and I get the feeling the listener would get a little beat down. But I, it, it, all, what you're saying is, you know, I, I I everything you mentioned, I love doing every one of those things equally. Whatever the whatever the situation, it's just an opportunity for me to participate in making some music, and, and hopefully it, it's it appealing to the listeners, but as well as to me. You know, if I think any any artist. You know, should really try to please themselves and be honest to what that is, what they're what they're aspiring to to be as a as a writer or a player. Sure. That's that that's so important to you know for, for and people feel that if you're busy trying to be something that you're not, and I still struggle with this. You know, I want to be, gosh, I love this player. I want to play more like that, or I want to be able to do this. And I might try things in the moment and just that that wasn't me, and that didn't, that, and I totally missed it. You know, so the more that you can you can honor what what you really do the best and and just be the best you you know this is my own self-help tape by the way i'm speaking to myself here. You. just the be the best Apple. you can do it you know uh but it's that's it that's a, there's a lot to that if every artist is being honest i think they they all every one of us struggle with that is you know feeling like we're good enough but uh
1: imposter syndrome i get it yeah
0: there's it. a little bit of that i think it, it's just but I, and I noticed that at a certain point in my career when i I hadn't been really a, a dedicated practicer, you know. Mm-hmm. It, when I recognized it and made the decision to get back into that pattern, I, I really felt my spirit over time after, after you know, struggling with, like, God, I really don't sound very good right now. I got to really, but the more that I I, I was consistent with it, I, I noticed not only my idea, you start to notice your playing and your abilities is getting better. Like mm-hmm. anything, like going to the gym, man, that first day it's hard, but, after six months all right yeah i'm feeling i'm feeling better it's the same thing with the the pursuit of you know artistry on your instrument it's it, it takes it really does take a regular honoring of whatever gift you've got whatever path that you've you know chosen hopefully for good reason you know i when i got back into that that kind of regular not regimented but just if i could just do this first thing every day my spirit was better, you know, I started to recognize that I, I just felt better as a human being. It's just my, my happiness was it was elevated. And that's just so much of my, I think, and a lot of artists that spend their life doing something, so much of your self-worth can be related to that ability. And when you have a bad day, sure. in your art forms, like, oh man, you know, it can be a little dark. So um, just by giving it that effort, I call it honoring that gift. Um, it can just make such make such a huge difference and uh, you know, lead to a, at least a little happier life, you know?
1: Well, totally different direction here. Yeah, Something man. I was genuinely curious about, <laughs> when I was in Japan one time, like 06, 07, I remember looking at a chart and mm-hmm. seeing an Andy Timmons album was in the top 10. What? And, <laughs> what
0: what it, chart was that? <laughs>
1: it, was, it was like a sales chart for either Tower Records wow, okay. or HMV... It might have been
0: when it might have been when Resolution came out because that would have been 2006. Wow,
1: and it could have been just strong first week sales, and that was that. It could have been that your guitar endorsement company gave 4,000 copies out to people who attended a the clinic. I was just trying to figure Uh, out where that mainstream success out of nowhere came from. With Japan, was it the fact that Danger Danger toured Japan, and you also worked with Vi, and it was by association?
0: Well, I think all those things. I mean, certainly. Um, any anything that I would have done that would have garnered some kind of fan base, you know, if if they're true fans, they'll they might follow you, you know, to other projects that you do. And, and, and the Japanese fan base is certainly a very loyal fan base. Mm-hmm. So I, I, obviously my first my first uh, you know step on a Japanese stage was nineteen ninety on the first international uh, Danger Danger tour. I think we went there in January of nineteen ninety. If my chronology is correct, but we done we done really well there, um, and did a couple, obviously a couple a couple different tours. And so when I would go back, you know, I started going back with Simon Phillips and I'm with Olivia, but then also doing clinic tours for Ibanez and for Mesa Boogie. Um, so I've been, I've been to Japan over 20 times now um, in, in all kinds of different situations. But there is always a fan base. And I, I guess I'm very, just very fortunate that I, had, I got my foot in the door at a certain time and I've got some fans that, that dig what I do. And yeah, certainly when um, when I started working with Steve I for his Favorite Nations label, and that would have been the, the peak of that would have been the resolution record in 2006. We were on the cover of Guitar Player mag. I mean, Guitar, Young Guitar Magazine. Which is Young like
1: Guitar, Burn, all, all yes. those great Shinko
0: publications. The Shinkos, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. You, know, you know your Japanese stuff. <laughs> it, they're, they're their most beautiful publications. I just can't read it. Well, I can look at all the pictures. You know, I yeah. never did learn to read Japanese, but, but there, Steve and I were on the cover. I haven't been on the cover of many guitar magazines, so that was an honor for me. And uh, so that, that may have been the helpful factor there. That, you know, Steve Eyes not of approval and support you know and then the i i've been as a mesa input yeah because i was doing some clinic tours around that time and my band went over to play so maybe that's what led to a little bit of chartage. that's that's nice to hear Ultra.